This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Ping.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. So for now, hey, our fearless friends, here's Lisa Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for many millions of podcast downloads. Once again, we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest. My guest of today is a brilliant trailblazer by the name of Amy Opadisano. So who is Amy? Well, what I can tell you about Amy is that she currently serves as creative marketing and branding manager of Bloom and is a co-founder of TerraTech Corp., the first publicly traded cannabis company in the U.S. of A. Before she was on the ground floor of the legal cannabis revolution, Amy made her career in residential interior design and construction management. She first worked for several small firms before branching off on her own. As a real estate entrepreneur, Amy has successfully flipped more than $8 million in residential real estate, making a name for herself in Southern California for breathing life into homes that were otherwise unsellable. Her work has been published by several major blogs and has been featured in Architectural Digest Germany. However, her focus, drive, and passion in the professional world for the last several years has been in cannabis, everything from brand development to retail identity and corporate ethos. Most recently, she successfully launched a discreet delivery service in Orange County. Amy served on the board of directors for TerraTech Court from 2012 to 2017 and is one of the first female founders of a publicly traded cannabis company. In 2018, Amy used her position in the marketing department at Bloom to focus on promotions that encourage social responsibility while giving back to the community. Amy has organized activations that collected supplies for the victims of the wildfires in California, donated a portion of sales to commemorate the Las Vegas shooting victims, and passed out hundreds of pounds of meat at the holidays for local families in need. Under her leadership, Bloom has also been an active participant in local pride events, art shows, street fairs, and the Women's March. She most recently has been instrumental in launching Project Mission Green with the Weldon Project, aiming to provide aid for those incarcerated for nonviolent cannabis offenses. 
As the wife of a medical cannabis patient, Amy is focused on the needs of the patient community with a specific focus on education surrounding cannabis. Amy believes wholeheartedly in the regulated cannabis industry. She has witnessed the great lengths industry regulators have gone to to protect the consumer, much in the same way organic certification has done for our food supply. Amy is very proud to be a part of an ethical industry that sells a transparent product the consumer can trust and wants to ensure her career path focuses on sharing that message while providing them a product that enhances their lives in a positive manner. This can be seen in the marketing directives with Bloom that focuses on education, responsible cannabis use, and respectful visual representations of the cannabis consumer. Amy holds a Bachelor of Science in Design degree from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. She also completed coursework abroad at the American Intercontinental University of London. She is married and has two children. Amy shares her philanthropic ideals with her husband. They have jointly supported the American Cancer Society, helped fund a van for the East Oakland Boxing Association's daycare for children, set up a legal aid fund for families with children who have encountered issues surrounding obtaining medical cannabis for their sick kids, and are heavily involved with Mission Green, which seeks to aid minorities who are directly affected by the war on drugs. Wow, what a repertoire. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Amy, how are you, my friend? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me and for such a beautiful intro. Well, it's such an honor and a privilege to have you. And I tell you, when I'm interviewing women specifically who are in the field of entrepreneurship, and when I look at collectively what you've managed to hone for yourself in terms of giving back, being of service, all the ways in which you're able to extrapolate upon the skills, because it is a skill which has obviously been transferable for you from one vocation to currently what it is you're doing now in terms of being solution focused. So truly you're a visionary, truly you're innovative, and truly you're on fire here. So I wanted to say kudos to you and thank you for being a part of the show today. I know that the listeners are very grateful to have you with us today, as am I. Thank you very much. So, Amy, let's talk a little bit about the inception of your journey. Um, Most people who catapult onto the trajectory of what it is that they feel impassioned or very purpose-driven to do in terms of being a servant leader, it usually is birthed not out of passion, but out of some kind of trial, tribulation, or some type of cathartic aha moment that's really changed the trajectory of, of where they're going and what they want to focus all their time and energies on. So what was that for you in your particular case that people would glean for what it is you're doing now today? So I met my husband 13 years ago, and very shortly after we met, he was in a surfing accident in Orange County. He hit a sandbar in very shallow water and fractured his T1 vertebrae in his neck. Um, He was hospitalized for a little over a week. Uh, By the grace of God, no paralysis. He can walk. Um, That's the biggest thing that we were so thankful that he was a lucky one. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a lot of residual pain that goes with that, as well as initially, I mean, he was in excruciating pain for that first, you know, week in hospital. So they had put him on Dilaudid, which is typically used as an end-of-life opiate in hospice care. So it's stronger than morphine. And of course, you know, when he was on it, he felt amazing, but, you know, he, as soon as that, that initial good feeling would kind of start to come down while he was in the hospital, he'd just be telling me like, this is making me feel terrible in between. And I really don't want to continue down this road with these kinds of drugs. Um, Fortunately, he had the foresight for that because that was not as commonly known 
back then how destructive that these prescription opiates were to mm-hmm. people. And so I'm also incredibly thankful that he was wise enough to have made that decision back then. So coming home from the hospital, obviously he needed something for pain and you can't just take thousands of milligrams of ibuprofen every day. We had been recreational cannabis users and we're obviously hearing, you know, that medical was picking up steam. And he said to me, like, maybe this will work. Like, this could actually be the solution. I'd like to try it. And so we did. And I can say for with so much gratitude that cannabis has kept my husband off of opiates for 13 years. Um, And he literally does have daily residual pain from that injury. So he does a lot of holistic care in terms of, you know, stretching and he has an inversion table and it's a lot of, you know, daily maintenance to make sure that it doesn't flare up and get bad. But cannabis has been a huge, huge piece of that, both topically, internally, um, and just, you know, anecdotally, we can say for, in our experience, an incredible pain reliever. Fantastic. Well, I'm happy to hear that he's doing well and certainly doing much better than had this not been in existence. So I just want to say really wonderful news to hear. And I just want to say too, obviously, we're talking about a very controversial subject. We're talking about something that, uh, you know, there's a lot of misnomers, a lot of misconceptions. And so for what it is that you're doing, I would really like for you to break that down for people who are working with misinformation, uh, people who are working with stereotypes stereotypical information, because of course that would be part and parcel of what you would have had to overcome in terms of getting to the point of where you are now as a licensed business. Um, so what, are, what have been some of the hurdles? What are some of the misconceptions? How can we properly educate people on this program, Amy? So I think, you know, a good place to start is when I first jumped into this industry with the passion level that I had and with this understanding that I had gleaned by doing all of this research at the outset, um, I was very excited about it, but I was also very nervous to tell people that this is what I was doing. Mm -hmm. We jumped into this industry 10 years ago. It's very fashionable and cool today. It was not back then, you know, so we were definitely met with some resistance from some people. Fortunately, our families were incredibly supportive and understanding. And, you know, it, it was funny, like I grew up in Nebraska very conservative state. They've actually just banned CBD even. So they're probably going to be one of the last ones for, you know, the tipping point of legalization. So I was really nervous to tell my parents. I went to Catholic school my entire life. I went through the D.A.R.E. program because I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And my parents were like, well, we never told you, but we're totally okay with this. And, you know, we used to, you know, dabble in cannabis a little bit in the (laughs) 70s. And And they ended up giving us a little bit of seed capital. So that was the biggest relief for me because out of anyone in my life, like I really only care what my family thinks. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was, that was helpful for me to go forward with a little bit more confidence, but I guess in terms of the stigma, it, it definitely still exists. And I think where it affects our business the most is that a lot of these companies are just afraid to work with us because every company has some level of, federal responsibility or regulation, you know, whether that's advertising, insurance companies, banks, um, credit card companies, healthcare, life insurance, all of these things that we've been denied over the years. And there are very few companies that are willing to work with us in terms of basic goods and services. So Mm -hmm. we either end up paying a lot more or we just go without. Um, And one of the hardest things that we went through in the beginning was I 
became pregnant with our first child and it was something, you know, we had gotten married and we're kind of like, you know what, if kids happen, it happens. That's great. So we weren't trying, but we weren't not trying. And so, you know, I became pregnant in the fall and then my husband was still, as we had started this company, he was still also working his old job in finance at Morgan Stanley because, you know, I really wanted to go into this with some measure of security. Like we can't not take a paycheck and, you know, I was working as a designer that had completely dried up after the, the market melted down in 2008. So I was like, let me jump in and be the full time and you can kind of still help earn for us on the side. Well, Morgan family had caught wind of that and he was terminated, at which point we also lost our health insurance and this was pre-Obamacare. So my pregnancy was a pre-existing condition. So I was not able to obtain health care while I was pregnant with my son and it was very, very stressful for me because he was my firstborn child. So you've never done this before. You're worried about your health and safety. You're worried about the health and safety of the baby and his normal development and progression and things like that. I was not even able to obtain an ultrasound while wow. I was pregnant until the last month. And I was, I, it just, it was very, very stressful and very challenging and, and really just kind of opened my eyes up to a lot of people's challenges in this country when it comes to healthcare and cannabis is such a um, good peripheral piece for that. I think that, you know, as we start to see research unfold, real legitimate research from prestigious universities, this is going to replace or supplement a lot of our existing healthcare. So, and I think it will do so at a, in a way that's less financially devastating, that's less um, toxic to the body, things like that. So I think that my passion really, really comes from this deep sense of empathy for what people are going through, because I've seen my husband with this devastating injury. I've seen, you know, what happens when you don't have access to good health care and how that feels and how terrible it feels to be helpless to a certain degree. And so I think that that's really where you know, we set aside those challenges and just, you know what, they're par for the course. If I can't get my life insurance policy for now, so be it. Um, you know, we just kind of keep trucking forward because we know that 50 to 100 years from now, people are going to look back and think all of this was completely <laughs> ridiculous. And, and especially, I think, you know, there are certain certain uh, groups that are doing a very good job of educating people. And I think, one level of education needs to be towards what happened in the 60s and 70s and how all of this propaganda over time from the, the inception of it, even in the early 1800s from the Spanish church, it really simply came down to racism and them wanting to have some sort of mechanism to control another group. And when you think about cannabis, everybody has been using cannabis at equal rates. It's not that certain races use it and others don't. It's pretty even across the board. However, it's something that is very pungent from a sense standpoint. So you have a, a way to search people, you have a way to target certain people, and it really seemed to hit a crescendo around the time of the Vietnam War. And same with psychedelics. There's a lot of amazing research that they had been doing for psychedelics as a legitimate medicine. And they just found that cannabis and psychedelics were making people more peaceful. And it was not helping them fuel their war movement. It was causing all of these protests. And so it ultimately gave them another avenue towards quieting the counterculture and putting people in prison who spoke out against something that the government didn't want them speaking about. So, 
if you really, really dive in and do the legitimate research on this, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would come away from that believing in the stigma. It just takes education and that's it. And I think the other piece of that that's really, really uh, compelling is the endocannabinoid system. Are you familiar with that at all? Not maybe on a very superficial level, but for the sake of the, the listening audience, if you can extrapolate upon that, that would be really beneficial. So everyone's body, human bodies, mm-hmm. even animals, have an endocannabinoid system. I am by far not a biologist or a scientist, so I'm going to give sort of the um, base level uh, Mm -hmm. explanation of this, but it's basically a system within your body that has receptors similar to how you have serotonin and dopamine receptors. You have cannabinoid receptors. Cannabinoids are the molecules in the cannabis plant that cause all of these different effects. So we're very familiar with THC, that cannabinoid is the one that makes you feel very high. We're also very familiar now with CBD. CBD also plugs into those cannabinoid receptors, and we're theorizing all sorts of things that it does. We're not able to make claims at this point without you know, uh, FDA-backed research and studies, but um, we are seeing that obviously it helps regulate appetite. That's why you know, when you have cannabis and you have a cancer patient who can't eat, can, the cannabis is stimulating appetite because your endocannabinoid system is that regulator. It helps regulate mood. It regulates sleep patterns. It regulates hormones. Um, so it's pretty interesting that it somewhat controls your entire body. And some of these researchers are starting to think that there are people who are actually cannabinoid deficient. And that could be the cause of certain mood disorders, anxiety disorders, um, disrupted sleep patterns, things like that. So as you begin to supplement with these cannabinoids, they're theorizing that you're going to be able to get your body back into its natural rhythm, the rhythm that you were born with when your body was perfect and it knew exactly what to do prior to having all of these outside things sort of pull you off track. Um, So I think that that's pretty incredibly fascinating, just the fact that The human body has a receptor that is perfectly made for cannabis, just like two puzzle pieces that fit together. And if you look at that from a logical standpoint, it's very clear that this has been a natural medicine that's been used for thousands of years. And that, again, the stigma is just really silly. When you have someone suffering, I don't believe that any other person has a right to tell them that they can't take whatever is going to alleviate that suffering. Wow. Very informative. I really appreciate you sharing and opening that up for us. So let me just delve into this then, Amy. So we know that there's still a lot of people who are very skeptical of all of this, uh, either because they haven't done the research, uh, they want to cling to their old beliefs that don't necessarily support the evidence and and the true awareness and the research that's tied into what you've just opened up for us here on the show. So if we're, and I play devil's advocate for everything because it, it opens up the floodgates on having a more informed dialogue about this. So for the people who might be listening or for just people at large, uh, generically speaking, for people who would say, okay, well, we know that people suffer from addictive personality. We know that people are pre-wired or hardwired in such a way. And so everybody starts somewhere in terms of if we're talking about substances, drugs specifically. So a lot of people would say, whether they're looking at it from the, the parental standpoint, or they're looking at it from the medical community, or they're looking at it from the legal community, people will say often 
oftentimes people who end up dabbling in drugs or end up acquiring a a severe addiction, it has sometimes started with marijuana. So when we talk about recreational use uh, risks and benefits versus it from the medicinal perspective, uh, taking out of the equation, you know, people like cancer patients, et cetera, et cetera, people who are in chronic pain. What do you say to the people who are looking at it strictly from the recreational standpoint, who are concerned that by embracing all of this, they're then, they're therefore giving license or they're giving permission or they're giving consent. If bearing in mind, looking at it from their children's perspective and looking at it from their parents' perspective, you know, what am I opening up here? Am I going to be uh, partially responsible down the road for creating a habit that became a a habit for something a little bit more, uh, you know, debilitating? Like, let, And this is where I want to open this up to demystify and debunk a lot of the misnomers that people are working with. So I think that that the whole gateway drug um, concept has yeah. a few different components to it. And that's kind of ultimately what we're getting at. So, and I'm a mother. I think that that's important for people to know. I have two children that are grade school age. And so this is something that obviously we have a lot of conversations about in my home, especially because we're in this industry. How do we promote and deal with responsible use for our children? Mm-hmm. Um, my own personal perspective on all of this is that every culture in the world pretty much at this point has embraced alcohol use and considers it extremely normal mm-hmm. and they are completely accepting of the of the concept that an adult should be able to go make their own choice and have a couple of drinks and it's on that person to be responsible about it it's on them to not drive after they're intoxicated it's on them to seek help and treatment if it becomes a problem and that's something that people just don't I don't think a lot of people necessarily sit and start to analyze our norms as much as they do these new things coming in. And I think new things coming in are met with a little bit of fear and mm-hmm. caution, which is absolutely normal and understandable. Um, but I also think we, also, we need to analyze our societal norms and say what is serving us and what isn't. And, and I'm not, I do drink wine. I, I'm not an anti-alcohol person by any means. But I do think that if you look at it from that standpoint, that there can be a reasonable middle ground met that from a recreational standpoint, this substance is, I personally believe, far safer, um, especially because it is made to connect with your body. Alcohol takes from your body. Alcohol gives you a bad night's sleep. You can get a hangover, dehydrates you, can make you nauseous, headaches, all of these things because it's not made for your body. It's technically kind of a poison going in. And so I personally think that probably over the next 100 years, I would imagine a shift away from alcohol recreationally and a shift towards cannabis recreationally, especially as we see access open up especially as we see different products on the market. We have a, a product at Bloom that's a THC-infused beer that has no alcohol. It's a craft brew made in San Diego. It tastes amazing, gives you a very light buzz, similar to a regular beer, and no hangover the next day and no bad feelings. So I think as different generations of younger people become adults and they go out and they're going to party on multiple things and kind of start to see like, wow, I could have a very similar experience and not feel bad and not make bad decisions or, you know, I can start drinking and possibly feel terrible. So I think that's one piece of it Mm -hmm. is that, you know, I, I think people should tread 
without so much fear and sort of rationalize based on those types of things. The other piece of it is I think that legalization can actually help take some of that away because if you are purchasing legal cannabis from a dispensary, these stores are beautiful. The products are very nicely packaged. They're very up and up and all they're selling is cannabis. If you have to go to the black market and purchase illegal drugs, what, what else does that drug dealer have? Typically, mm-hmm. they're not solely a cannabis dealer. So I think a lot of that also just comes down to access. And that's somewhat of a scary thing to do, to go to a black market drug dealer and obtain these drugs. And I think that the comfortability comes more from that experience than it mm-hmm. does necessarily from cannabis. I don't think that cannabis is something that makes you this crazed maniac seeking more and more drugs and a more and more of a high like these all of the drugs do different things to your body so you know the feelings are not going to be the same so it's not that someone who feels the feelings of cannabis gets to a certain impact point and then has to jump to opiates to get that high and that's where the problem with these opiates and these pills are coming in is that your doctor gives you something you think it's okay you think it's safe those do build up a tolerance that make you seek more and more of a high, but you're seeking an opiate high. None of those people are seeking a cannabis high, you know, to get more high than they would off of these opiates. And so a lot of people that are normal people that don't have addiction problems, that don't have addiction in their family, suffer an injury, get a Vicodin prescription or what have you, there's residual pain, and then that becomes a problem. Then they get cut off from their doctors for Vicodin, especially now that these databases are popping up to track the usage of these pills. Those are people that are turning to street heroin because they need an opiate high and they're going for more and more and more and heroin is cheaper and gets Mm -hmm. them more high. And that's really why we're seeing this like crumbling of people's lives who were completely normal. And that um, Project Truth, has taken this up and I don't know if you've seen any of what they've done but I think that they did enough work with nicotine that they've kind of moved on to these opiates and it's incredible the storytelling that they're doing and the awareness that they're raising and you know again it just it shows you this normal person that didn't have addiction so it's not something that I believe cannabis is causing people to have an addiction there are people who are going to be addictive in any anyways and they will need to seek treatment. They should avoid substances whatsoever. But, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons that cannabis has been considered a gateway drug, but the legal market can sort of eliminate some of that just simply because of the access point. Wonderful. Well, I can certainly attest to a lot of what you just said there, Amy, because in my own personal experience, the people who I know who have had extreme drug addiction, it's been the result of prescription for a back injury uh, or there's been something that's happened to them that uh, debilitated their being able-bodied in some capacity and then it became uh, habit-forming. So I do attest to that in my own personal experience of, of knowing what people have suffered from. It wasn't because they started off smoking pot and marijuana and then it progressed into something that became completely full-blown addiction. It really was something that was prescribed at the the helm of the medical community. So thank you for saying that. Um, Now, And and I think another piece of, of addiction too is like, when you really look at the root causes of addiction, and I actually did work, do some PR work for an addiction clinic for a while that did treated people for opiate addiction. Um, 
a lot of addiction really is going to be stemming from trauma, from depression or anxiety, Mm -hmm. seeking to self-medicate. And I think that a lot of people in society, potentially as parents even, would like to place blame somewhere else. And this was an easy scapegoat because it was so stigmatized that, you know, it wasn't anything I did or it wasn't, you know, poor parenting or it wasn't this trauma that happened to us. It was the cannabis. Whereas, you know, I think most people who really deep dive in an understanding of how addiction works, it's not just a physical chemical addiction all the time. Um, You know, what is driving the behavior? What is driving the compulsion to drink or use or what have you? Um, And those things are really what need to be addressed if you want to solve absolutely outside of the people who have gotten a bad rap from you know, a doctor's prescription. Absolutely. Well, and that's true because I, you know, going back into my former vacation, uh, vocation of being in social services and I worked with every demographic of people possible. So when there was some type of correlation between somebody having been in crisis, therefore coming to our doorsteps for service, uh, when it was a case of drug addiction, there was a correlation between, um, you know, pain and being in crisis and unresolved issues. And there hadn't been any treatment level, you know, call it cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, counseling, whatever the case may be. And there usually is a whole plethora and myriad of issues not faced, not confronted. And there was also dual diagnosis, right? Wasn't again, because of the gateway drug of starting with marijuana for the purpose of having some form of escapism in their life. Uh, So there's a lot of what you're saying and you're so well informed and you're so well versed on this. And I think this is why I'm also happy and impressed to have you on the show too, Amy is because when people hear marijuana, they think, you know, uh, slow, gross motor skills. People can't put two words together. People are all over the map. You know, they're a mess in their life. They don't know how to hold a job. They don't know how to do all these things. You're a very articulate, very succinct in your messaging businesswoman who understands based on what happened to your husband, Derek, and how this became something you as a family took on, realizing and recognizing, well, if we're afflicted here, it can't just be us. So how can we be part of the solution for the collective? So I, I just want to say thank you for being the face and thank you for being the voice that really does debunk some of what people's stereotypes still are of today because you know you've already attested to uh you know being a recreational user and have been for quite some time and yet when i hear you you know you're so on the ball you're so succinct you're so articulate you're a savvy brilliant businesswoman you're a visionary so again for the listening audience And this is a show that creates open-mindedness and and the people who do tend to uh, show up to listen to the show are very much receptive to learning uh, and relearning and unlearning for the sake of getting a little bit more of a different shift in perspective. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I think that something you said was really important as well in terms of the legal market, again, brings this measure of predictability that didn't really exist within the products prior. So mm-hmm. while I certainly don't believe in the stereotype of, you know, everyone lying on their couch and can't function, when you don't know what you're getting, that could happen by mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, edibles are a great example. And I personally use edibles to sleep at night. Ever since I had my children, I have a really hard time sleeping. I'm not a huge fan of the way edibles make me feel during the day, but it is the best 
sleep aid I've ever found without side effects, without any addiction, like melatonin, for instance, can cause your brain to stop making its own melatonin. So I always wanted something safe with that. Mm -hmm. Prior to legalization, you had no idea if there was five milligrams in your edible or a hundred. And if you accidentally took a hundred milligrams of edible, like you're kind of done for the day. So, um, so I think that that's another case for legalization, honestly, is just safety. And especially when it comes to kids, if they did get access to something, heaven forbid, at least, you know, nowadays that the dosage is very small in an individual piece. And it's not a child accidentally obtaining some brownie that who knows made it and all the oil could have settled into one corner and given, you know, a thousand milligrams of THC into this one bite of brownie that actually could have happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And so again, I think that whether people are for or against cannabis, legalizing this product makes it safer. And there's someone that you love that will want to try it or will want to do it. And I'm all for having them as adults making their own decisions in a safe and controlled environment so that at least no horrible accidents happen, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the receptivity and the buy-in that you've obviously established with the community of people that you continually collaborate with and in terms of also your philanthropic, um, you know, contributions. So for the the types of charities and the types of service providers that you're interfacing with, uh, some might have been, you know, a little bit surprised to hear when I was plugging the bio at the top of the hour, Amy, you know, wow, like, you know, schools are getting behind this, you're coming into the schools, you're talking, uh, you're educating people. So, you know, to what degree have you broken down some of these barriers of, of people going, oh, we can't have this particular person come and speak to kids or we can't take their money as a charity provider because then there's, you know, some kind of stigma that's associated with that. So let's talk about some of the barriers that you're actually breaking down with true service providers in the community. So I think there's a little bit of a difference in Northern California in the acceptance level of cannabis. And that's really where our business began. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and we're always, you know, if we are working with a charity that is involved with children or anything we're always very upfront this is the kind of company that we are we would never give information that was inappropriate for kids or anything like that um but you know they a lot of those groups are just desperate for funding and the the area that we've operated in typically in the bay area is very low income and they were all for legalizing cannabis because they knew all of the different areas for the community that the money could help affect change. Um, And so that's really sort of the initial ethos behind it is just that there, there was sort of a blanket exception of cannabis up there because it's kind of the hub of, of cannabis legalization. It started in San Francisco with the AIDS community. Um, And then there's so many growers in Northern California. It's a great environment for that. So it's kind of woven into the fabric of their culture. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that we felt like we got as much, you know, stigmatized reaction towards up there. It's obviously a little bit different in other areas in the country. Um, and we've certainly been met with a little bit more resistance since we moved back to Southern California. But, you know, there are organizations that we've donated to, and we're just not even, we always tell them that we're cannabis. But for instance, we donated um, a talking fire truck to a school in Santa Ana last fall. And that's where our 
um, store in Southern California is located. And we were like, are you sure you're okay with this? You know, it was something we really wanted to do. And we didn't talk about cannabis at all. We definitely showed up for when the fire truck came to the kids, but it was all fire safety and it Mm -hmm. was simply us paying for it. And so that's the sort of thing that, you know, when you have a good heart, I Mm -hmm. think people are okay with, you know, that. And as long as we're honest and we make everything age appropriate, it it hasn't really seemed to be much of an issue, especially now. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, let's talk about the Weldon Project and let's talk about what's happening in terms of incarcerations for nonviolent cannabis offenses uh, for people who, you know, consume cannabis, have been caught with cannabis, and they're serving like these ridiculous sentences as compared to the counterparts of people who are also institutionalized serving time, uh, but for more heinous crimes and they get out. Like, what, what's going on here? So this is really a hangover from the war on drugs and the yep. mandatory minimum sentencing policies that they put in place. And I'm extremely familiar with this just because of the industry that we work in. And I've been, you know, around this for 10 years and have heard these stories. But when I'm out in the community or I'm speaking to my friends or family or people who have never met someone who's been incarcerated, their minds are blown by the system here in the United States and how, like you said, there are people for rape, murder, child molestation getting, you know, seven to 20 years. And you hear about someone like Weldon who received 55 years for less than $1,000 worth of cannabis. Something is really wrong. And it, it did come down to them putting those, those harsh punishments in place during the war on drugs era because they were trying to obviously eradicate drug usage and thought that this harsher punishment would solve that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the war on drugs has been a massive failure. And the casualties are these families and these individuals who've had their lives stolen from them. Or, you know, it it trickles out. It's not just that person. Weldon is a great example. He had two children, young children at the time of his arrest. He was the breadwinner in the family and was providing them a really nice life. He was in the music industry. He was becoming very successful. And then their dad gets taken away. And those two children grew up on social services because their dad wasn't there to help and to provide for them. So when you think about that, like, where is the justice there? Where is the justice that these two children now have trauma because Mm -hmm. they lost their father for 13 years? They had no, you know, support mechanism at home financially to give them a quality of life that they should have had, Um, you know, and especially for three transactions that were less totaled less than a thousand dollars. Wow. And it, it, it just is one of those things that no one's done anything about it. Like we all sort of now recognize, Hey, this was so wrong, but it's not been fixed yet by the federal government because they're just not a hundred percent on board with cannabis. Obviously we haven't seen legalization in this country and it's going to take that, I think to overturn these regulations because, you know, individuals can't do it. It needs to be Congress. And do you foresee those changes in the legal system? Do you, do you see that being eradicated in the, in the near distant future? What are your projections I for that, Amy? I actually do. And this is what gives me the most hope about it, is that Weldon has the support of a lot of uber, uber conservative Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, and that surprised me in meeting him that this cause is actually very important to a lot of them. I think Senator Mike Lee is a wonderful example of that. Senator Mike Lee out of Utah is really the reason that 
Weldon got his clemency. He had all these people working for him, but it obviously takes the person with the right access to the White House to make mm-hmm. it happen. So Senator Mike Lee and Charles Koch sort of pushed that through and got uh, Weldon clemency under the Obama administration. So Senator Mike Lee is from Utah. He's a Mormon. His father was the very first uh, dean of Brigham Young University. His father also was an appointee under the Bush, or I'm sorry, not Bush, the Reagan administration. So when you have someone like that whose family history is very heavily entrenched in the conservative side, really forcefully speaking out and saying that this is wrong, this Mm. is not okay, I think that that's what it takes. It takes those people to who have the respect of their party who are looked at as you know these long-term political families these very influential families if they're on board we'll be on board so it just i to me it's just a tipping point and i think we're Mm -hmm. very close but obviously to the people who are sitting there incarcerated every single day two years three years it's not close enough you know i hope that we see something sooner well, and it's got to get to the point where it's not a case-by-case basis. It's really just saying for anybody who falls, unfortunately, through the cracks in the same category as what Welland did, you know, because for the, you know, you can have all the resources, you can have the clout, you can have the notoriety, you can have the namesake and the family legacy, and you know, but for the amount of time it takes to get one person relinquished out of that system, and as commendable and admirable as what that is, we know that there's a laundry list of not only the people who are still within the same circumstances sitting there and rotting but we know that because the laws haven't been changed there's going to be a plethora of people coming in the doors through the legal system every single day for the exact same charges right yeah and actually uh the fbi published a report just i believe it was last week that said even though we have more than half of our country with some measure of cannabis legalization cannabis arrests were still up in the last three years in a row they're still arresting more and more people on these charges even though we're seeing you know this huge tipping point um what i think really needs to be done is a sweeping clemency program so -hmm. that those people don't have to wait and fight their cases individually um we certainly would hope that our next president whether that be trump or a new president would understand this and i think you know like i said both sides of the fence seem to be paying attention and seem to be aware of it so i feel very hopeful that irregardless or regardless of the way that our um, next election goes we may see something like that fantastic well i want to give you the opportunity we still got some time here to talk before we close out amy and unfortunately time always goes way too fast for my liking on these programs particularly with uh, guests such as yourself um but where can people reach you? Where can people connect with you either for speaking engagements or to find out more specifically about your products and how they themselves can be a recipient of your products or be a subscriber to your business or partner with you in, um, you know, in the social responsibility sphere? How can, how can people reach out and connect with you? Um, I am on LinkedIn under Amy Opetisano. I'm also on Instagram as at Amy underscore Opetisano. Our business is pronounced Bloom, but spelled B-L-U-M. So our website is www.letsbloom.com. So that would be L-E-T-S-B-L-U-M. And our social media handle for Bloom is also at Let's Bloom. 
And we have a really beautiful blog on the website that we, we do post to the social media as well as gets published on the actual website. And we've focused a lot of that on education, destigmatizing, um, just showing people the normalization of cannabis. So I think that our blog would be a really great area for people who are just sort of curious to learn more, see what California cannabis is doing in the space, et cetera. Beautiful. And so if there was one specific, because everything you've said here has been very invaluable, it's been very educational, and you've certainly brought a lot of awareness to this program, uh, Amy, for which I'm really grateful for. But if there was one specific takeaway or breakthrough that you would hope would resonate with the listening audience and eventually the podcast subscribers, what would that be specifically? I think the most important thing would be for me to tell the people who may find themselves against cannabis today to do the research and to be open-minded about it. And I think that, you know, once they really dive in and see that this is not as harmful as we've all been told, um, you know, their minds will open. And even if it's something that's not for you, I think it's important that we're all open-minded about it because the next person may be suffering. And if something can alleviate their suffering, it just shouldn't really come down to one person's opinion as to whether or not they're allowed to obtain relief. So I think, you know, the education and the open-mindedness is the most important piece. Beautiful. And what do you project as being next on the horizon in terms of business expansion with your company? Because as somebody who's, you know, committed fiercely to personal growth, personal development, but also taking that and tying that, incorporating that into your business and your business model, what else do you foresee for yourself, even if it's like a five-year projection or a 10-year projection? Where do you see your company going, your product line going? I think, you know, we always do a very good job of listening to the consumer and, you know, staying on top of trends and things like that. I know CBD is incredibly popular right now, Um, you know, so we may wind up looking into different product lines or things like that that sort of incorporate what the trends are and what the consumer is seeking. We also, you know, are obviously looking at growing in the California uh, marketplace. We really find California to be... um, extremely progressive and yes. you know what we've seen some of these brands do out of here is incredibly exciting and so obviously we all hope for federal legalization and that way you know some of these brands and the the amount of expansion that could be done through that would be incredible because right now that's our largest barrier to expanding is we can't cross the state line so it makes a lot of things really challenging and i also just hope that you know with federally federal legalization, we can also see much more growth because we do get held back quite a bit in terms of just these little headachey things that most businesses don't have to deal with. You know, most Mm -hmm. people don't have to spend nine months looking for a landlord who's willing to lease to you. Most people don't get kicked out of their payroll company and have to start from scratch building a payroll system that took nine months to build, you know, so things like that. I just hope that, you know, we're able to accelerate and grow in tandem with what a normal business would do. Fantastic. And so one thing that is very near and dear to my heart in terms of subject matter, but not just subject matter, it's it's in terms of how people incorporate this into their DNA, their mindset, their leadership, uh, particularly as a servant leader. But for yourself personally, Amy, what is the legacy you wish to leave behind? How do you hope to one day always be remembered when it comes to you resonating with others that are still here while you may not be? 
I mean, I, I do think that or hope that, you know, 100 years from now, cannabis is an incredibly normal and healthy part of society. And I think, you know, what I really hope out of that is that, you know, the research comes to back up the things that us in the industry know, anecdotally speaking, mm-hmm. and that we're sort of looked at as pioneers and the people who said, at all costs, I'm still going to carry this forward because I know that it's the right thing to do. And I, I truly believe that this could cause a fundamental shift in mm-hmm. society in terms of the way we view healthcare, wellness, um, holistic care preventative care. Um, I do think that cannabis has a lot of potential in all of those areas. And just a simple thing, if you think of a society that most people report they have anxiety and maybe they don't sleep well, Mm -hmm. what if cannabis helps 50% of those people with anxiety and sleep? And then they're happier people. They're more fulfilled people. They're better parents. They're better employees. They feel better. They smile more at the grocery store, whatever it is that little small thing could have such a massive ripple effect that fundamentally shifts us in a positive direction. So that's really kind of my hopes and dreams, I guess, for cannabis in the future. Beautiful. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, clearly for everything that you've endeavored to do and what you continue to embark upon, Amy, there's no, there's no denying that you are somebody who chooses to live fearlessly, deliberately, intentionally, and on purpose. But in terms of what it means to you specifically outside of your accolades or the examples, the laundry list of examples for which I can continually cite for how you've demonstrated that and exhibited that, what does living fearlessly mean for you? I think it means really setting yourself aside and not in a way of becoming a martyr, but just looking at things from a different perspective of just fulfilling the needs of my own ego is not really going to satisfy me at Mm -hmm. the end of the day. So what can I do to set that piece of me aside, put it in its pocket where it belongs and do something for the greater good and to do that regardless of how the consequences or, you know, whatever may be more challenging um, but it, you know, it's just something that needs to be done. And if somebody doesn't do it, then nobody will do it, you know? So I think it's, it's just important to sort of take the leap and be an example and hope that you can also affect more people to do the same. Beautiful. And I'd like to give you another opportunity, Amy, where can people find you? Where can people reach out to you, connect with you, seek you out for your suite of services and product line? Um, for the web, for the business, the website is Let's Bloom, L-E-T-S-B-L-U-M.com. And for me personally, please find me on LinkedIn or Instagram, which is at Amy, A-M-Y underscore Opetisano. And I'm happy to answer DMs and comments and what have you. Beautiful. And would you very quickly be able to cite us uh, an example, a testimonial or an endorsement or something you've witnessed from somebody walking through your doors, either because they've shared with you their personal circumstances for why they're interested in your product, whether it be something that parallels and is in line with your husband's story or something completely different in terms of what you've now seen shifted in them in terms of their quality of life or things really opening up for them and their family uh, where it's become more quality of life. 
I recently met a man who came in to talk to us about CBN, um, which mm-hmm. is a newer cannabinoid that recently was discovered. And he was 91 years old. Um, he was incredibly kind and in sharing his story. And he ultimately was telling us, you know, I've been using these patches every day for months. We have patches that have like an oil infused and you cut a strip and wear it on your wrist. He said, I have never felt so good in my life. I'm 91 years old. I feel 70 again. He said, I can walk. My knees don't hurt. I'm sleeping well at night. The sleep has affected everything in my life in terms of mood, desire to get out and do things during the day. Um, And he really wants to advocate for CBN as helping the elderly. And that's sort of why, you know, he and I sat down and started talking about that. Um, But it just, that's a perfect example of, someone you know to get your quality of life back when Mm. you've lost it is probably even better than someone never getting there in the first place you know I think that when you feel like a lost cause and all of a sudden something gives you hope and you're like got to spring in your step again what better of a gift could you give someone in their life you know and that's again going back to encouraging people to be open-minded I don't think anybody should tell that man he can't have access to something that makes him feel 20 years younger. You know, Absolutely. it's just so exciting and uplifting to hear. And when you can feel the enthusiasm in someone's voice about how this has helped them, like, it's just incredible. Well, that's beautiful. And the other thing that I loved about you having cited that specific example is the person's age specifically, because when we talk about stereotype, when we talk about resistance, when we talk about uh, people's lack of ability to be open minded, that's oftentimes associated with older generational thinking. So the fact that this story comes from a gentleman who's 90 years of age shows that anything is possible. So I really appreciate that. Absolutely. And, uh, and again, Amy, you're always welcome to come back on to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald because for the Spitfire Trailblazer you are, there's always going to be something new going on for you that you would want to share and impart with the listening audience. Uh, You're a phenomenal guest. I absolutely loved how well you succinctly articulated everything and really brought that level of awareness and educational piece to the listeners and to the podcast subscribers. Um, So I thank you personally and professionally for that as the host of the show. Um, Always striving for people to have new information uh, imparted to them in which to turn around, walk away from process and and learn something outside of what they may have learnt or thought they knew going into the listening of the program. So thank you. To the listening audience, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule for tuning in to myself and Amy of this week on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. I'm very clear on my purpose. My purpose is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. So until next week when we're joined by yet another phenomenal guest, I want to thank you for the gift of your time and I want to wish you all my very best. Love and gratitude to all of you and to you as well, Amy. Take care. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, 
you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. And until next week, our fearless friends, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio telling you to be your own hero, be your own hero, be your own leader, and be your own best friend. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.